This program is designed to provide general information with regards to the subject matters covered. This information is given with the understanding that neither the hosts, guests, sponsors, or station are engaged in rendering any specific and personal, medical, financial, legal, counseling, professional service, or any advice. You should seek the services of competent professionals before applying or trying any suggested ideas. Woodbury Reports, with your host, Lon Woodbury, talking with leading professionals about how parents and others can help their struggling teens, preteens, and young adults. Now here's your host, Lon Woodbury. Welcome back to the Woodbury Report. I'm Lon Woodbury, located in North Idaho. And here is where we talk with interesting people on all things involved with struggling young people. The topic today is sex and the teen. And to talk about that is uh, Nicole Hassler. Now, Nicole is from the Midwest, single mother of three, and moved to Los Angeles to continue her career and uh, wrote a book, Sex, a Book for Teens. So, welcome. Good to have you here, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, let's start off. You've had an interesting background raised in the uh, foster care system. Uh, and particularly, I mentioned that was uh, very interesting. Uh, but tell, um, us how yeah. you came, tell us how you came to be you. How I came to be me is uh, it's, that's, that's a pretty loaded question. But uh, I would say uh, from a very young age, um, I had to employ a lot of coping me- mechanisms to... Uh, to just deal with all of the tumultuous situations that I was living in and uh, as a result developed a really strong sense of humor that got me through things. Um, And let's see, foster care, I was in uh, 15 different placements by the time I was 17. And uh, Yes, yeah, and uh, the things that happened directly after getting out of foster care were pretty typical for a kid raised in that environment. You know, I ended up pregnant and homeless by the time I was 18, um, had a lot of, a lot of time struggling. And, uh, I think I just got to a point in my life where I thought, all right, I, you know, I was suicidal from the time I, as, as early as I could remember. And I just thought, all right, well, if I'm going to be alive, I need to make a choice to either, you know, stop being miserable or keep being miserable and, and watching my life stay out of control. So, um, I mean, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, say it that easy. Obviously you made a good choice. Yes. Yeah. I made the right choice. Okay. Well, how did you come to write the book, Sex, a, 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 a book for teens? Uh, some years ago, a good friend of mine had just graduated from film school and had gotten a camera and said, you know, you were the, you were the kid in school who always talked about sex and who people always ask questions to. Uh, let's do a video podcast. And that was kind of a new thing at that point in time. 
so we started making a show called Midwest Teen Sex Show, and immediately Midwest Teen Sex Show just took off. Um, you know, the phone started ringing. Wall Street Journal did a cover piece on it. Um, and uh, as a result, I was asked to write a book for teenagers about sex uh, that wasn't standard textbook stuff. You know, actually used my sense of humor to discuss topics that adults don't normally talk to teens about. Mm-hmm. You know, that reminds me, I thought while you were talking, uh, and the whole topic of sex is, I think it was Steve Allen, a comedian, way back in the 50s or 60s, said something, well, love is what the, makes the world go around with a worried look. <laughs> And, yes, and exactly. that's very true. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. I've been amazed. But I had uh, I put out a pre-release uh, on this show over the weekend, and I got some response back for it. Uh, some people have shown some interest. So uh, let's start with getting into talking about teens in particular. How do teens usually learn about sex, and how is it handled, or how is in your case in the foster care system? But the basic question: How do teens usually learn about sex? I think all teens usually learn about sex the same way, and that's from their friends. Um, And because they're learning about it from their friends, uh, there tends to be a lot of confusion, um, you know, because nobody wants to look like they don't know what they're talking about. Everyone wants to seem like they're an expert. And so as a result, that kind of harbors this, uh, so many instances of, of teenagers feeling like they're abnormal. Something like uh, the blind leading the blind is a, is a phrase that comes Exactly. To it's not only the blind leading the blind, it's the blind leading the blind and them all telling each other, oh, I can see. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, that, that peer pressure to be the expert and all of that. And so mm-hmm. you, got it from the, you got the information from, the, from your friends. It probably didn't, uh, didn't uh, do, you, do you very well. Uh, it didn't. You know, I grew up in in the Midwest in small towns, and I think uh, one of the most remarkable situations uh, was uh, I had been sexually active with a much older guy when I was fairly young, and I was living in a group home, and I came back to the group home, and I told the woman working there what had happened, and, uh, you know, she knew this. She knew this guy. She knew that he was 28 and that I was 12, and uh, instead of doing what I thought would be normal, which is immediately reporting the incident. She um, asked me some, asked me questions about what I had done and said, you know, you did the right thing. That's what guys like. And so at that age, I got the message that in order to be valuable, I needed to, uh, to do the right things in bed. Mm-hmm. And the consequences of that wasn't very good, I gather. <laughs> well, I mean, for years and years in the foster care system, they do a few things in the foster care system. One is that they keep you medicated, um, you know, on a lot of psych meds. And the other thing is that they keep you on birth control. And so for the duration of my time in foster care, I was on birth control. Nobody talked to me about, uh, you know, being, nobody really talked to me about safe sex. Uh, they just kept me on birth control. And then from the moment I got out of foster care, I kept engaging in the same sexual behavior. I just didn't have any health care, so I didn't have birth control anymore. And I got pregnant immediately. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. Well, to bring it up to date, I understand you have uh, two teenage uh, 
uh, children, two teenage sons. Well, how do you talk to them about sex? And I presume you've w- learned a few things since your foster care days and can uh, oh, talk yeah. to them more appropriately. It's so funny because I actually go and I, I speak to teenagers about sex all the time. My show was for teenagers and it was about sex. I would get 150 emails a day from teenagers asking me questions about sex. I hate talking to my kids about sex. I think that's surprising for people. I think that they would assume that I just, I have such an easy time of it, but it's, it's just as uncomfortable. It's just as uncomfortable for me as it is for anyone. Um, you know, because there's this thing with your kids um, where them becoming sexual people means that they're even less a part of you. Yeah. Um, so, of course, it's uncomfortable, that acknowledgement in the first place and just the feeling like this is, this, is, uh, this is so uncomfortable. But I also make a lot of jokes with them about sex. And, and I think because of that, you know, we're able, to, we're able to be a little bit more straightforward and honest. Tell me a little bit more about how you use humor, what you're trying to do. I, I get the general idea, but a little bit, but maybe a couple of examples of how you've approached a particular topic and, and make it palatable or they listen to you better because you use humor. Oh, well, I'm absolutely ridiculous. That's, that's what it is. I say things that are so far beyond rational or reasonable uh, that it just breaks down the, the tension around the topic and then uh, I'm able to then quickly throw in some actual real information. You know, there are, there are topics that I, when I say that people don't tend to talk to teenagers about certain things, um, I feel like uh, we have our boilerplate, we will talk to you about birth control, we'll talk to you about STDs, uh, but we won't talk about orgasms. We won't talk about, um, you know, different sexual acts. Like we, those definitely let's not talk about oral sex. Um, I think, you know, let's just skip over those things because that has to do with the actual pleasure of the act. And, and I think people feel uncomfortable talking about that, but that does a huge disservice to teenagers because those things have elements in them that the kids need to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was thinking of while you were talking there earlier is uh, I guess I cheated a little bit. I had uh, four kids, three daughters, and but they had mm-hmm. a mother. They had I I had talked to mom. Was my reaction? Yeah. <laughs> of course, you know I, what girl would want to talk to her father about sex? Right, right. And what boy wants to talk to his mother about it? My kids don't want to talk to me about sex either. Um, but it's never been a situation, and I tell parents this all the time, I've never had a situation where I've sat them down and had the talk. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are so many opportunities everywhere, all around us. Uh, you see a huge billboard. I mean, we live in Los Angeles, and even our billboards for, for um, work boots uh, have scantily clad women on them. There are plenty of opportunities to talk about sex. Um, and so w- rather than it being one giant talk, it's just a constant conversation. I think that sounds very wise. And yes, there's plenty of opportunities. It's amazing how uh, well the uh, advertising uh, industry is latched onto sex cells because they put that into almost anything uh, or so- something like that. Um, and talking to the teenagers, 
what do they ask you most about or what seems to be the main question or concern when they open up and start talking? What, what seems to be the f- top things that are on their mind? You know, the, the number one concern with teenagers is, uh, am I normal? You know, whether that's what they have done, what they haven't done, what they are interested in or not interested in, they all feel like the same way that teenagers feel about everything. Like, they're, they, there's so much ego <laughs> to being a teenager. So it's all, you know, everybody must think that I'm a huge weirdo. Um, you know, being a teenager is a weird thing. So oh, yeah. That's well, num- the- yeah, the, uh, what I heard is uh, 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 one person has observed that, well, uh, a serious mental disorder is a unformed personality, and that's also the definition of an adolescent, unformed personality. Exactly. They've got they've got no idea who they are yet, and they're trying to figure it out. And you throw all of these hormones into that, and it's just a really confusing time for them. Um, so what do they what do they what do they ask about? Do they ask about well, I have these thoughts or these urges, and that does that make me a weirdo or a pervert or something like that? Yeah, some of it's based on having thoughts or urges. Some of it's also based on them feeling like. Uh, you know, all of my friends, all of my friends are having sex, but I'm not oh, even course. interested in it. I'm not uh-huh. even interested in it. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, that's, that's actually more common than not. Um, also, uh, a lot of times with teens, what will happen, and this is, this actually pertains really to struggling teens. Um, is that they reach out and they ask a question, and the question can be a pretty standard question. Um, you know, like, I, uh, my periods are very heavy or, you know, things about their body. And once I reply, then they feel like in order to keep that conversation going, they need to create a series of melodramatic instances to continue talking to me. Uh-huh. Uh, How is it? Because, what 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 kind of questions uh, uh, did uh, the the boys and the girls? I presume there's a different approach there. Or are there different questions, or are the boys very reluctant to talk to you? No, boys are pretty open with talking to me. Um, boys are uh, uh, the uh, the boys that I talk to all tend to have the same response, which is, you know, oh, I wish you were my mom. Um, until I remind them that actually uh, my children would probably. <laughs> tell them a very different story about what that's like. Um, but now the boys, I, I think actually just one of my favorite questions ever was from a group of boys who came up with this brilliant plan. It wasn't so much a question just so much as they wanted an endorsement for their plan. They really didn't want to wear condoms. And so what they figured they would do is find one girl that they all liked make her go get tested, and then they could all have unprotected sex with her. And when I wrote back and I said, well, okay, that's, uh, that's an interesting way to think about it, um, but what about pregnancy? Then they, they thought that through, and they wrote back and they said, well, we're all going to get vasectomies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a plan. Yes, yes. So uh, that one was that one was one of the more brilliant questions. But no, boys tend to also worry that you know, like their girlfriends will think that they're they're somehow not uh, not macho if they don't make the first move, and they want to know how to go about making the first move. And 
you know, it's, it, at the heart of it, it's sweet because it's a good reminder of what that time was like and how terrifying it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, one of the question that you suggested that, uh, the, if, and partially it would come from your foster youth, but how do you talk to teens about sex when many of them come from backgrounds of sexual abuse? Doesn't that sort of disturb the whole atmosphere or, or something like that? How do you talk with them? Oh yeah. I mean, it absolutely can. It's when you, when you have teens who are coming from a background where they were molested or where they were in, um, you know, very, uh, strange and restrictive homes that placed a lot of uh, shame on sex and sexuality. Um, I think the mistake that a lot of adults make is they assume that kids who've been in those situations are somehow street smart, that there's a wisdom to them that other kids don't have. Um, You expect that, you know, foster kids have seen things and and been through things. And so as a result of that, then they must be, um, you know, they must know more. And the reality is when talking to these kids, you need to talk to them the same as you would any other teenager when it comes to sex. Covering the basics is very Mm -hmm. important. Um, Not shying away from difficult topics to talk about. Um, I know uh, a foster girl that I was talking to who said um, that she was having a lot of sort of sexual fantasies where she was reenacting things that had happened to her. And she thought that that made her as bad as the person who had molested her. Mm. And, and, uh, she had, she was, you know, keeping this pent up and she felt very afraid that like she was also an abuser or that she would end up becoming an abuser because she was having these thoughts. And it was wonderful to be able to say to her, no, you are taking something that happened to you and you're taking control of it. You're allowing yourself to, to think it through and put yourself in a position that takes it from a negative and turns it into something that's, that isn't uh, victimizing you. You know, I'm talking about uh, the children that have been uh, sexually abused. Uh, from what I read in the gathering is that two common reactions in, uh, would be, one would be that they're afraid of the whole thing, and mm-hmm. the other is that they're promiscuous. Have you seen that, and is that common, or do most of them... It's mostly some variety of shame and it's internal, but doesn't affect their behavior too much. I mean, I think that even I think that the ones who are promiscuous are more uh, are acting out on the shame even more. Uh-huh. Um, I see this with um, I, I would say uh, I mean to to make a parallel that's maybe not so strong. My middle son, if he feels embarrassed because he feels like he did something wrong then he acts out, he acts out even stronger and, you know, will just uh, uh, storm off and, you know, throw a big fit about things. And, um, you know, on a completely different level, but the same sort of idea is when you have all of this shame within you about things that have happened to you uh, with sexual abuse in your life, uh, one way to deal with that is just to say, fine, I'm already broken. I'm going to be, I'm going to act out sexually. Uh-huh. Like, obviously, something was already wrong with me. 
Is that more common than a, than a, somebody that uh, has so, been so traumatized, I guess you could use the word, that they want to have nothing to do with it? I think um, that it's more common, that's a more common way for girls to act on it. Um, the boys, Yeah, being promiscuous, I think. I think you know boys have a tendency to more uh, to to clam up and and go the opposite direction. Hmm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of the things that because uh, uh, you talk and you talk and obviously you got, can talk fairly openly about it, but uh, in the Amazon reviews for your books, that a few parents have expressed concern that the content is an instruction manual. Uh, how do you respond to that? Um, you know, anytime somebody puts up an Amazon review and and they're just outraged at the content in the book, um, my response to them is, I'm really glad you read the book. Uh, I actually don't like the reviews where they say, I'm so glad this book exists. Uh, I just bought it and I, I just gave it to my kids so I don't have to talk to them. Um, or, you know, parents who haven't actually read the book and get the book for their kids. I would prefer that any parent who gets the book reads it, and whether they're outraged or not, at least they then have the knowledge that's that's in the book. Um, you know, a lot of the reviews will say, like, there are things in this book that I didn't even know. Um, and while they're negative reviews saying there are things in this book that I didn't even know, I feel like that's still a positive because now the person actually knows more about sex. Um, you know, there's, it's, it's not, the book specifically does talk about relationships and, um, about the emotional side of sex. And I think that that's easy to overlook because it, it's a small book. It covers a lot of ground. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was uh, leads me to a question I had uh, had in my mind: is that uh, what were the goals of the book? What was the takeaways you were hoping people would get? Uh, teens, parents, whoever, uh, the, the takeaways that they would bring from the book. There, I mean, the only real takeaway that I would hope that they get from the book is that they could use it as a, a reference when they do have questions. Um, you know, the way the way that the book is is broken down, uh, it's very easy to go to specific chapters and look at things. Um, and I've, uh, I know a lot of people who say that when they were teenagers, they, their parents had a book in their room or there was a book that they would pass, pass amongst their friends and everybody would read it and um, that it was some sort of a secret thing. I hope that this book is less of a secret thing. I hope that this book is just there and uh, you know, just easily accessible. How, how, when did you publish it? How long has it been around? The book was published in, I believe, late 2010. Mm-hmm. So it's been around about four years. Yeah. Three, four years. Uh, how have the sales been going and, and response? Sales have been good. I'm, I was really glad to see that it's, it's available on Kindle now. And uh, I also was so excited. I didn't even know that this was happening, but it's uh, translated in French and in Spanish. And so I recently got to see a copy of the Spanish version, and I don't know why it tickles me so much, but it's called Sexo, which I think (laughs) is a really good superhero name. Uh Well, it sounds like it, yeah. Uh, Well, you know, you talked about... 
uh, using the humor. Could you give some examples of uh, the topics that uh, the kids would ask a question and you respond with, I presume, with uh, some humor, and but to get to uh, particular points. Uh, could you give some examples, and do you think that's why uh, teens have tended to gravitate towards your book? Um, you know, I think they they gravitate more towards the the podcast than the book, just because it's it's not a book. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, I, I think one of the things that the book does include in every, in the end of every chapter, there are uh, questions and answers, and the very last uh, part of every chapter is um, there are no stupid questions except this one. Um, that's an example of where we, where I put, you know, some pretty ridiculous questions that people would ask. Um, and I think that, that doesn't necessarily make fun of people for asking questions, but it does let them know that whatever their ridiculous question is, it's, uh, it's probably not so bad. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think about examples during the, the show, um, you know, we do, we did several sketches in the show. Uh, the, the format of the show itself is I'm hosting it, and in a very dry and straightforward way, I'm uh, giving information, and then we cut in sketch comedy that covers the topics as well, and I think it takes people off guard. Mm-hmm. Um, who... who uh, I, I presume you, you speak or ask for presentations. How often does that happen, and what kind of groups are you asked to talk to? Oh, that's that's so varied. Um, I go into schools sometimes, and that would be usually private schools. I haven't been asked to do any public schools when it comes to sort of sex ed presentations. So private schools will have me come in and talk to their health classes. I have talked to... Uh, uh, groups of producers who want to know uh, more about, you know, how how to produce film for teenagers or produce videos for teenagers. Um, I've talked to medical students about how best to reach their teenage patients. Um, I got to speak at Yale. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, Having never been to college, it was kind of neat to call up my dad and say, "Hey, I'm at Yale." <laughs> oh, I'm a I'm a instructor at Yale or something like that. Yes, yes. By the way, I finally made it to Yale. <laughs> um, yeah, getting called in, and uh, it hasn't been for a while, but there was there was a short stint in there where I was going in whenever they had one of those morning shows where it would be. You know, let's. Uh, we just found out that more people are having sex. Let's talk to this person about it. Then you know, I got to do some of that, and it was a lot of fun. But my favorite, my favorite uh, times to go in and talk to people is actually when I'm talking to teenagers directly. I'm terrified of adults for some reason, but teenagers, I can I can talk to all day. Uh huh. What would you, uh, if you could talk to your 15, 16-year-old self with what you know now, what would you tell her? Um, you know, there was, there was something that I was told when I was 18, and uh, right after I found out that I was pregnant, um, there was this teacher that I had very briefly, and she said, I just want to tell you, not everything has to be a tragedy. And I didn't listen. Um, 
I, you know, just, it seemed at that point in my life, everything kind of was a tragedy. Uh, you know, things, everything was changing and not for the better. I didn't have any sort of support system around me. So I felt like everything really was a tragedy, but I think if I could have listened to that, if I could have understood that, um, you know, it's, it was actually people, people would still care about me even if I made good decisions. I think that that was the main thing that I needed to know. And I think for a lot of, a lot of teens, uh, and a lot of parents need to know that they have to remind their teens constantly, I will pay attention to you even if you're making good choices. <laughs> like, especially mm-hmm. if you're making good choices, I will pay attention to you. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about uh, some of your background on the foster care situation and what would you... Uh, what would you think could uh, could help the system? Because I've heard a lot of things about the foster care system, a lot of criticisms of it. Would you like to uh, reminisce a little bit and what would have uh, helped you a lot more, uh, not only just on the, in the sex information, but a little broader if you'd like to? Yeah, absolutely. I can be very broad about this because um, I don't. I didn't have a very positive experience in foster care uh, as you know, from 15 placements, that probably indicates that it wasn't a great time. Um, I feel like the people who choose to be foster parents, um, I think that there are a lot of people that I meet who they say, oh, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think I could be a good foster parent. Um, And then I think back about the people who, who did decide to be foster parents. And I feel like there's a lot of, uh, um, a lot of abuse happened in the foster care system. So well, I've heard I some think, people claim that it was uh, that the people get into it for the money, which doesn't make much sense. Oh, but I heard this for a lot, long time. Well, I mean, it, here's the data that you should look at. Most foster parents are uh, would be considered low income, and so while it wouldn't make sense to you that okay, that doesn't seem like it's very much money. If they're getting a certain amount of money per every kid that they have in their home, then that is an income, mm-hmm. um, and, and that income is significant to those people. And so the money I, is is a part of it. The benefits that you get as a result of being a foster parent, you get free food, you get an allowance to take care of the kids. But it's those the people who get into it for the money or uh, um, for for those reasons, aren't as scary as the people who get into foster parenting for the martyrdom of it, the, to be an angel. Explain um, that a little bit more. Is that sort of a trying to trying to uh, uh, you know impress impress your friends or impress other people? Impress the community. Uh, a lot of I, a lot of foster parents would take us. You know, if it was we were out in public, I, this happened. You know, multiple times that I would have a foster parent who, every time there was a new foster kid, they would sit and they would tell all of their friends, "Oh, this one was molested. This one, her dad tried to run her over with the car. Um, here are her problems. Oh, here are the things oh, that she does." And the, and uh-huh. as a foster kid sitting there and having someone talk about you in that way and then list off all of your behavioral problems while everyone said, you are such a saint to this parent, um, you know, and those were the same parents who would also say, like, uh, who would, 
who would say, you know, you don't show me any gratitude. I've let you into my home. I've taken you in and you're not grateful to me. I think that that's a flawed idea. Did I ask, did I ask to be removed from my home? And, you know, the, the very, the thing that most kids get, which is just this sense that of course I'm going to be taken care of. That's, that's sort of a right as as a person who's not an adult that I'm I should expect that I'm going to be taken care of but with uh with foster youth in particular it's more that you know you should be grateful that you're being taken care of and it harbors a lot of resentment oh yeah uh well it's hard for any kid even in the best of circumstances to really appreciate what they get and to expect a foster mm-hmm. kid that's beat up and and bounced around uh expect appreciation for them is even more. Tom, uh, I think you'd mentioned earlier a certain amount of uh, sexual abuse, uh, and I presume some of that goes on in the system. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, easy target. Um, children who've already been abused are a very easy target for, for um, you know, f- for future abuse, and whether that's physical, emotional, or sexual. So they're, you know, in, in my experience and in the experience of all of the many um, kids I was in foster care with, there was a lot of sexual abuse that went on. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess the criticisms is, is spot on, or at least uh, there's definitely something there. Um, but well, you think, ask you, you, oh, uh, I'm sorry, um, but, but then when you're in that situation, you, you actually say to yourself, well, this is, but this is at least better than where I was. Yeah, I can see that too. Well, you talked earlier about the common questions about the teens have asked you about sex. How about adults? I presume even though you're uncomfortable with it, you, you do talk to some, some adults or adult groups? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how are their questions different from what the kids ask? Um, I mean, they're not. They're not really all that different. It seems like uh, here's a here's a question most adult women want to know. They are terrified of having children because they're uh, they're afraid of what that's going to do to their vaginas. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know the, the answer to that is is actually that it's a myth that you're you're going to end up with uh, you know with a permanently damaged vagina from having children. So or 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 a figured disfigured. Yes, disfigured or the the wind sock or whatever you want to say. Um it's mm-hmm. not going to happen, ladies. Go ahead and have babies. <laughs> yeah, well, having babies is a rather natural thing. It might be a little tough, but it's natural. Yeah. It's been going on for a long time. That's right. It's not a good time, by the way. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, could you give some examples? I'm I'm sort of curious uh, uh, on the humor, how you might a, a topic you might approach, and uh, uh, and and the humor you might apply to it. I'd like to see how that how that works. If you can think of an example, if I can think of an example, let me. Or think several that. examples, if you'd like. Or several examples. Uh, let's. I'm just. I'm trying to think back to this show in particular, and some of the different topics that we covered, and some of the things that I would say. Um, let's see. Uh, we definitely, uh, when it came to the anal sex episode, uh, we had somebody do sort of a, a, a food network kind of take 
with with a hot dog and a peanut butter parfait. <laughs> so, okay. uh, you know, it's it, it's uh, it, so she she was uh, she was being a typical Food Network person, but kind of uh, talking about cleanliness during anal sex. Um, but uh, I talked about um, how you what you eat uh, uh, affects uh, the odor and taste uh, of of your vagina. And I said, so if you always eat vagina, your vagina always tastes like vagina. So it's just little little one-liners like that. I mean, I'm having trouble really thinking of the. Uh, That's probably uh, there. There's spur of the moment. What seems what seems to be appropriate at the time. Right. I mean, you would have to you would have to actually see it in the context of an entire episode to understand uh, the 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 jokes themselves. But as far as you know, just the way that I incorporate it into my life and and with with my kids. Um, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll make jokes pretty frequently. And my son was asking me about condoms, different condom sizes. And he was saying, you know, how do you, how do you even know what size to wear? And I remember I said, well, you know, you, you try a normal one. And if that's too tight, then uh, you try a Magnum. And if that's too tri- tight, you try an extra large. And if that's too tight, and he looked at me and he said, then you're a horse. Uh, so, you know, that him being able to have that conversation and him being able to make uh-huh. that joke. Sounds um, like you I picked think, up your sense of humor. Yes. Yes, they definitely did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're just able to be relaxed in talking about these things. And, you know, fingers crossed that if there's some really hard, difficult stuff that they need to talk to me about, I feel like... Setting the setting the and the um, laying the groundwork for that has already happened. Do you have any sense that the uh, attitudes among young people have changed uh, over the last uh, uh, several years? I know uh, uh, this might be going back from what you've heard, but like say uh, oral sex is something that's more accepted now, but it was a big deal uh, back when uh, on the Clinton scandals and back in the 90s was when it really became introduced into popular conversation. Have you seen yeah, changes? I think that, absolutely. I think kids are able to talk about so many things now and they talk about it so openly. And I see this I see this in conversations my, my kids have with their friends in front of me and in front of their own parents and on Facebook. I feel like they have, uh, you know, a lot of conversations um, that they probably wouldn't know years ago. And they're very, very laid back about it. Uh, there are a lot of gender discussions now, too. It's not just, you know, sex acts themselves, but I think um, there's a tendency with teenagers to lean more toward being very accepting of the possibility that, you know, gender is a little bit more flexible. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's uh, a lot of things are changing. Uh, I've been around for a while, my grandfather, and, uh, yeah, things big changes since I was... Uh, since I was a teenager, and just what's acceptable and what's talked about, and uh, and you're seeing some of that even 
even in your experience. Well, let's go to another one, a big thing that's changed society in all ways, but in this area of sex. Do you think the Internet, or what kind of impact has the Internet had on teens and sexuality? Oh, the Internet's crazy. <laughs> the Internet's oh, yeah. crazy. Cause you have, yeah, I mean, you have sites like um, Scarletine, where it's just constant knowledge. I don't know if you're familiar with, um, with Heather Green's site at all, but it is the best resource out there for teenagers um, when it comes to questions about sex or, or talking about sex because it's, you know, it's, it's just so honest and accurate. But on that same measure, there's so much information that's not accurate, that's out there. And beyond that, porn. When oh, yeah. That's the biggest industry on the net, I think. It's the hugest. And, and the the fact that your your kids can access at any time, they can access porn. And, and some of it's going to get beyond the filters. And they can access the weirdest stuff. Um, you know, it makes it even more important now that you actually need to discuss uh, everything with them. Because... They're going to see some weird things out there, and they're going to think even more, well, is that, is, is tentacle porn normal? Is that what I should be doing? <laughs> um, do you think that the Internet has started replacing the, the birds and the bees lecture of a bygone era, or the talk that parents should be having? I think that they can, they can definitely, you know, they can access that stuff. I don't think that there are any teacher teenagers out there who are necessarily looking up any sort of practical information when it comes to sex. They're not looking for, uh, you know, videos that explain things in a very dry manner. They are finding porn and they're finding urban dictionary where they can find all of the funny names for different sex terms. Um, so it's very important that we have content out there on the internet that appeals to teenagers and is accurate. Mm -hmm. I feel like I, I wish there were more teenagers who were making that content. That would be helpful on that. Um, is there, does there seem to be any difference to that or attitude to the internet or towards porn on, uh, on the girls and the boys? Cause uh, one thing that surprised me is a lot of the, a significant portion of the uh, porn viewers are, are female, I understand. Um, yeah, actually, it seems to be that uh, as many females are watching porn as males. Okay, so uh, um, it, 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 that sounds I mean, like I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised by it as attitudes change. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot more openness and it's not necessarily based on gender anymore. I think it's just as likely for, for girls to talk openly about sex as it is for, for boys. And um, I don't know, I feel like that's positive. Well, it's a, definitely a change and might be very good. How about the whole term, and it's been even disputed that it's, it's valid, but sex addiction. Oh, right. Yes. I mean, um, yeah, I feel like uh, I don't I don't feel like that. That's I feel like it's overused. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it a thing that actually exists and, and, and might be uh, possibly, you know, uh, 
a disorder that someone has, yes. But I feel like it's it's greatly overused. Um, well, I, I know the movie stars oftentimes say, uh, like say Tiger Woods, oh, well, it's just sex addiction. He'll go for treatment and everything will be fine. Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, that, that's definitely where it's overused, I think, with the movie stars. Right. Yes. I mean, the whole thing with Tiger Woods is like, okay, well, he, he is a celebrity with a lot of money who has the ability to have sex with whoever he wants. And cover up any messes that occur. He has the money. For yes. That. Yes. And so, of course, it's very, very easy for him to be able to just go out and do that. I don't know that I would call that sex addiction as much as I would just call it availability. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a handy term. How does that, uh, things like that, uh, influence the teenagers, though? When it, uh, you know, the whole Hollywood movie star set in uh, uh, different to morality, it sounds like. Um, I mean, I think that the the only the only thing that I feel like that that would do for teenagers is make them start to worry that they are sex addicts. I don't think that they would tend to glamorize it as much as just think like, oh, I must have a sex addiction. Like there are a lot of a lot of teenagers actually who actually think they have sex addictions. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any more sexual activity among teenagers now than say a generation ago, or is it just more no. in the open? Nope, I think it's just more in the open. Um, I I think that um, you know there's there's just a lot more personal responsibility that people are taking. Mm-hmm. And I think I I actually think we're trending in a good direction. I think that people are headed toward um, you know more positive feelings about sex, more positive feelings about gender and about homosexuality. And I think that. Uh, I, I'm very hopeful about what I see. Okay. What would you advise uh, the parents that might be listening or, or to the podcast that will come out of this? Uh, what advice would you give parents? What should they be aware of or, or strive to do? Um, you know, what they should be uh, aware of is that it's the same thing as those commercials that say if you're uh, if you're if you're a uh, um, if you don't talk to your kids about drugs, someone else will. Um, you know, if you don't talk to your kids about sex, someone else will. Or probably even more scary than that, nobody will, and they'll just sit there with their own ideas uh, and be afraid. And so I guess with with any parents, what they need to know is, no, you're not expected to all of a sudden be really cool about talking to your kids about sex. Like I said, I hate doing it. It's no fun to me either. Um, so even if you just straightforward address, this is awkward for me, this is uncomfortable for me, get that out there. Just tell your kid, like, I don't feel like talking about this either. Just thought you should know, but we do need to. All righty. Well, we have a a question from a uh, guest on the, on the chat page, uh, and ask when a man continues to look at porn, even after marriage, is that a problem? What what are your Uh, thoughts on that? I mean, my thoughts on that have changed so much um, when I, and I have been married and I'm divorced. And I remember uh, discovering my husband's porn and being very, very upset. Uh, and, you know, at the time he wasn't even home and I called him and I, I said, uh, I found this. Is that what you're interested in? Uh, this woman looks nothing like me. How could you... You know, how could you be still watching this? This is disgusting. Um, so for you at the you know, time, it was a problem. 
for you at the time. Oh God, it was it was a problem. It was a problem. It was a problem completely based on insecurity. I thought that my hus- by my husband looking at pornography, that meant that he was not sexually interested in me or that I wasn't meeting some need. But and it's ridiculous. Um, maybe a bit of an overreaction? A huge overreaction. Porn <laughs> is a completely different thing. Porn is a completely different thing. Um, it, it doesn't take the place of wanting to be sexual with your partner. It doesn't uh, fill that same need. It's, it's just looking at something, you know, it's, uh, it's the visual stimulation of, of looking and watching something. And I didn't realize that until many years later when I was trying to find um, actual erotica, when I was looking up sort of, different stories and I ended up finding a porn clip instead of something that I was trying to find erotica about and I watched it and I thought I really enjoy this mm-hmm. and this does, you know this doesn't mean that I don't want to have that I don't want to have sex with with the person that I'm with it just means I really I, I'm enjoying watching this I'm enjoying looking at this mm-hmm Okay. Well, we've about come to the end of our time, when, but I promise you uh, a couple of minutes to talk about what you do if people wanted to get a hold of you. Particularly, remind them again, the name of your book, how to get a hold of it. I guess it's on Amazon.com. And, uh, uh, and the uh, website, how people can get a hold of you. All right. Well, if they went to my website, it's NicoleHazler.com. It's N-I-K-O-L-H-A-S-L-E-R.com. If you want to buy the book through that, that helps me because that's through my Amazon account. Um, So helps me get a little bit, (laughs) paid a little bit more. Um, And the book is available in libraries as well. So libraries across the country, uh, you know, that's, a resource that a lot of teens tend to use. And then um, I also recommend just for uh, more on the humor end that people follow me on Facebook. And my Facebook is the same as my name, Nicole Hazler. Um, Just look that up on Facebook, hit that follow button, and you'll get all sorts of updates about what I'm doing and a lot of funny anecdotes about my children. Okay. Well, very good. And uh, we've just about ran out of time, but this has been very, very good, uh, Nicole. I've really enjoyed this, and uh, maybe uh, as time goes on, we'll have you back again to expand on this. But this is Alana Woodbury with the Woodbury Report. I've been talking to Nicole Hassler, who was uh, um, experienced, uh, wrote a book, Sex uh, Sex, a Book for Teens, and the topic uh, today, we've been talking about a sex and the teens, the teens and their sexuality and the problems and things they're going with. And be sure to come back next week where we'll be having another program on the Woodbury Report. Thank you so much. Thank you. Woodbury Reports. 